Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. So, when we talk about um, how do we get to goal and what are we going to use, let's talk about treatment. So, let me go back back a little bit. I mean, go back. And now we'll look at the treatments. And then I want to continue and talk about what are some of the finer points of the guidelines. So when we talk about treating patients with hyperlipidemia, boom, boom, let's talk about these. Here are the drugs. So when we talk about these drugs, um, of course, the guidelines are very one-sided. It's statins and more statins. But there are patients on other medications, and we should know what these side effects are going to be. So let's go down. Let's just list the drugs that treat hyperlipidemia. So of course, the first class is always going to be statins. Basic science questions, how do statins work? They're HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, okay? And there are many statins out there, simvastatin, atorvastatin, rosuvastatin, and they will ask you what are the two main most common side effects of a statin. And the first thing is always going to be, you tell me, is it going to be myositis? Is it going to be myopathy? Is it going to be myalgias? Or is it going to be rhabdomyolysis? What do you think? So I ask it that way because we kind of get confused sometimes. So it's not going to be rhabdomyolysis. Can statins induce a really bad necrotizing myopathy? The answer is sure. It's rare. You know what I mean? But rhabdomyolysis is really serious. That's going to give you CK levels in the thousands upon thousands. You're going to be in renal failure. And the FDA would not approve a category of drug whose most common side effect is rhabdomyolysis. So it really comes down to is the most common side effect of a statin going to be uh, myalgias or myopathy? And the answer is always going to be myalgias. So once again, which one is subjective? Which one's objective? Subjective is always myalgias. That's what my patient comes in complaining of. Oh, I feel just achy, 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 achy. But myopathy is pathology is myopathy. Myopathy is pathology. So how do we make the diagnosis objectively of myopathy 
is you order muscle enzymes, that the CK is elevated, the autolase is elevated, the LDH, the AST, they'll be elevated. Now you have damage to the muscle. And remember, once again, you know, statins are in the water practically. There's no way that category of drug will get approval if myopathy and myositis are the most common side effects. It really is just myalgias, right? And when we talk about myalgias, that's where we start talking about what seeing down here, it's called coenzyme Q. You know, many of my patients, when they get myalgias, will take it. And it's kind of a give and take. Sometimes people say it works, sometimes it doesn't. I look at the evidence-based literature. It's really a give and take, you know what I mean? Some are good studies, some aren't really. But you think about myalgias. Um, the second most common side effect of the statins is not going to be cirrhosis or liver failure. It's going to be transaminitis, right? And let's be honest, I mean, if you really wanted to pick a liver enzyme that would be affected by a statin, which one would you pick? Would it be AST or AL? I would go with AL because L stands for what? Liver. So you would think about those as the common side effects of being on statins. What's another category of drug that we could talk about? Well, we could put bile acid sequesterants. It's already up there. And, you know, that actually was the first category of drug that we used many, many, many years ago to treat hyperlipidemia. Um, the classic drug is cholestyramine or cholestopol. We don't really use it that much. I pretty much only give it to people I don't like. Just joking. <laughs> Why? Because it causes diarrhea and flatulence and all this nasty stuff because how does it work? So remember, where in the intestine do we reabsorb bile acids? It's going to be in the terminal ileum. So what does this, these medications do? They block the reabsorption of bile acid, and that's why you get a lot of the diarrhea. Because remember, bile contains lots of what? Cholesterol. It just has lots and lots of cholesterol in it. That's why you want to dump it out. But we really don't use this category of medications. What's a, a buzz word for the boards is kind of like, you know, bile acid sequesterants do increase triglyceride levels. So if you have hypertriglycemia, definitely don't put them on this because it'll make the levels go even higher. Um, another category of drug could be nicotinic acid, which is niacin, you know, and niacin's claim to fame is what? Yeah, raising the HDL. Um, when we use this, basically what's one of the side effects we all memorize? Flushing. That's why we always give what? aspirin when they take the medication. And it's not easy clinically to give, you know, niacin, you got to slowly titrate it up to almost two grams a day. Um, and right now, like I said, it's all about LDL. It's all about statins. So until the data is really convincing about putting patients on niacin to lowering, to raise DHDL, it's not being used as much, but you should be familiar with it. What's another category of drug? What about these two? But let's focus on the fibrates. So when we talk about fibrates, you know, it's claim to fame is always going to be lowering triglycerides, probably the most of all of these. Remember, they all can lower triglycerides except bile acid sequesterants, but fibrates tend to do it quite a bit. Uh, there's Timfimbrazole. There's so many brand names. There's Tricor. There's Lopid. And what is a side effect we worry about is, you know, transaminitis, being irritating to the liver. And these drugs were used as add-ons to statins, which were already liver irritating. So the combination of statins and fibrates really caused a lot of liver issues. So what did they do? They came up, they didn't really come up, but they started using more omega-3 fatty acids. These are omega-3 fatty acids that, 
you know, you can get from the GNC, you can buy them, and they will lower triglycerides pretty well, and they don't have the liver toxicity. But once again, the data for focusing on triglycerides first is just not there just yet. But notice how I put right here a picture of something called Lovaza. So a very specific drug company did studies to really prove that these omega-3 fatty acids really lower triglycerides rate. And they, you know, got an FDA approval and they have a brand name of a drug called Lovaza. So Lovaza is super expensive, but it's FDA approved. And like I said, their claim to fame is that it does everything the fibrates do, except they're not liver irritating. What about down here? This is the cholesterol absorption inhibitors. This is going to be in the questions we're talking about. The only drug out there is ezetimide. goes by the brand name Zetia. And its claim to fame is that it can only be given with a statin. You can't use it as monotherapy. And we've been doing this for quite a while. And in fact, um, simvastatin combined with the ezetimide, and they made the brand name Vitorin. So we, are, we have already been doing this. So think about Azetia as an add-on to a statin. If you're not reaching you up, your LDL goals over here. And of course, you know, before we go back, we start talking about a couple of other things, there's the newest, most expensive category of drug known as the PCSK9 inhibitors. So I put the first one that came out. I know there's another one out there. I mentioned it earlier among the questions. And let's go by the brand name, just easier to pronounce, Rapatha. And I think the take-home message is, how does this drug work? You know, so in this diagram in the middle, this will be the liver. On the liver, you have LDL receptors. And what do they do? They take up LDL. This is great. They take up all the LDL. And there is something called PCSK9, which is which will bind to the LDL receptor and inhibit it. Well, that's bad because you've inhibited that receptor, then you can't take up the LDL. So what we do is block PCSK9 so the LDL receptors stay on the liver and they can keep on taking up all the LDL and, you know, lower your LDL in the serum. These category of drugs were approved. The first one was in August 27, 2015. They're injectable, which people don't like, and they're expensive, which people don't like. <laughs> so this is the newest category of drug. I went back purposely because, you know, on the boards, there are people that like things that are a little homeopathic. And what are some homeopathic things that people take for the lower their cholesterol? Up here on the top right, you can think about garlic. Yep, garlic is one of those things. And if I were to ask you what is one of the side effects of garlic you should know for the boards, antiplatelet effect. So a lot of these homeopathic medications that we take for a variety of things that begin with the letter G have antiplatelet effects. So ginkgo, uh, ginseng, garlic, they all have some antiplatelet effect. And this is important because people who take garlic also take a lot of aspirin and clopidogrel. So just be aware of it. And on the top left over here, a lot of people take red rice yeast. And why would people take that? Is because that was the first plant where they discovered what? The enzyme HMG-CoA reductase. And that is the way statins work. And so what some people are doing, like, well, why buy the drug when I could just take HMG-CoA reductase from the red rice yeast and lower the cholesterol? Doesn't work that, you know, that well, but I just wanted to mention it because they may put these in the vignette to kind of confuse you.
And with that, all that being said, let's go forward now because we went through all the different side effects and all the categories out there. And now I want to say a couple of finer points about these lipid guidelines. So when we talk about the lipid guidelines, what's the good and what's the bad? I purposely left off the ugly. So the good thing about these guidelines are that there's no LDL target. So remember, I'm not going to go back again that the ATP3 guidelines were like, what's the LDL? What's the LDL? Are we at go? Are we at go? Get labs, get labs. You know what I mean? So we don't have an LDL target. And it's pretty much just give statins. So it's pretty easy to, you know, understand. And they only really used randomized controlled trials in their data. And I like that. But the bad is always going to be, well, it, there are a lot of conflict of interest about everyone being on a statin. And the next bullet point is, are we trying to statinize entire nation. So, but I do want to say a couple things that I mentioned already that there are going to be individuals that after you put them on a stent, you can't reach the goal. And that's where there are two other drugs that were studied that you can use uh, if you're not reaching a goal on a statin. And it's right here on the bottom. So statins, ezetimide, and PCSK9 inhibitors have been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. Among the three I just listed, statins are the best studied and significantly less costly and much, much easier to use. So these are the three drugs uh, categories that you need to know for the board exams. So let's talk about ezetimide a little bit because uh, there was a trial called the Improve-It trial and cardiologists love talking about this. So when we talk about the IMPROVE-IT trial, IMPROVE-IT stands for Improved Reduction of Outcomes by Torin, which is simvastatin and Izetamide Efficacy International Trial. So I showed the Kaplan-Meier curves over here. In blue is going to be simvastatin by itself. On the bottom is the combination. And on the y-axis is the primary endpoint. And look at the risk reduction that you would have that's sustained over seven years being on the combination. And this is why uh, ezetimide has been approved as iodine therapy when we talk about the lipid guidelines. And what does my middle bullet point stay here? High risk cardiovascular disease. Remember that's the top boxes over here. Let me just show you over here that I was talking about whose LDL remains above 70 after treatment with the statin. You could consider a PCSK9 antibody or ezetimide. Uh, and which one do I probably use the most? Probably ezetimide because it's oral and it's easy to take. Now that I've really just, you know, talked so much about lipid therapy with your folks, let's talk about a 48-year-old male is evaluated during a follow-up appointment. Three months ago, he sustained a ST elevation MI. He underwent stenting and he got a bare metal stent of his left circumflex artery. He was started on high-intensity rosuvastatin, which is Crestor, at the time of his MI. And his ALT and serum creatinine levels were normal. His recovery has been uneventful. He follows a heart-healthy diet. He exercises regularly, and he has no chest pain. He denies any dyspnea, palpitations, or lightheadedness. He reports no fatigue, muscle pains, abdominal pain, or changes in skin color. Medical history is significant for hypertension. Meds are going to be aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, 
resuvastatin, and clopidogrel. You know what? I kind of like all this. It's an MI. He's on the things that reduce what? Mortality, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, statins, double antiplatelet because he got what? Stented. I'm loving everything. Uh, on exam, vital signs are normal. There is no muscle or abdominal tenderness. The remainder of the physical exam is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate lab study to obtain during this visit? And this is a great question. Uh, let's do this together. So which one would I probably not pick? Um, probably would I do a C-reactive protein, right? That's for risk stratification. I think we missed the boat already. He's got an MI. I feel bad. You know, what about A and B? You know, we talked about the two most common side effects of a statin are what? Myalgia and uh, transaminitis. Should we check these things? The answer is, nah. Even though I told you these are side effects, you know, when someone, if he were to say, my muscles are aching, I am having these problems, you could consider doing that, but let's go back to this vignette. He's having no muscle pain, and there's no just empirically checking CK levels for the sake of doing it. You know, it's really tempting to check the liver panel. You know, if he was a drinker, if he's taking other drugs, sure, but no, no right upper quadrant tenderness. He's doing well. I, there is no guidelines or recommendations to rechecking that. What you do need to do is check that fasting lipid panel. Why? Boom. Let's go back. Let's go back. That we said that he had an MI, so he's up here in the high-intensity statin panel. He needs to have an LDL goal that's going to be less than what? 50% of where he started. So how do you know what his LDL is unless he checks a what? A fasting lipid panel. So in this case, the answer is going to be what? C. Good job, everyone. And here you go. Here's my answers. You got my slide deck. You want to get that uh, LDL panel around one to three months after the initiating of a statin therapy for adherence and effectiveness to drop them below 50% of what we want. If he's super high risk, like he has diabetes, he's going less than 70. After you maximized your statin, you may consider what? Ezetimide, consider what? A PCSK9 inhibitor. ALT, you can measure it before initiating therapy to rule out undiagnosed liver disease. However, the FDA no longer suggests serial measurements of liver enzymes. So let's just finish this off. We're doing amazing over here. So when we talk about atherosclerosis, I mentioned already that this is not a disease of one segment of the vessel. This is going to be looking at the picture, the whole picture. And a couple of things that are very important when we talk about coronary heart disease is that even if you have a normal angiogram, this is a normal angiographic appearance, still you could have clinical significant stenosis and atherosclerosis. And how do we know this? There were studies, and here are going to be the references down here, where individuals who had a normal angiogram, they did something called IVIS. What does that IVIS stand for? Intravascular ultrasound. And in the same patient, you can see these athero, atheromas, all these cholesterol plaques that can break off and travel distally, causing that infarction. So why are we so aggressive? Why did I spend so much time talking about the paradigm of atherosclerosis? Is because it can progress rapidly. You can go from a very open lumen to a complicated, crowded lumen in just 18 months. And that's why we're so aggressive when it comes to modifiable risk factors for atherosclerotic disease.
I love this uh, graph for one reason. People always ask me, well, what is the basic science behind cardiovascular disease? Why are we modifying these risk factors? What do they do? So I put in the big three, which are going to be hypertension. We spoke about different guidelines, the J and C8 guidelines, comparing that to the AHA, ACC guidelines. Spend a lot of time talking about lipid management. And I've talked about diabetic, diabetes control, trying to get that A1C to goal. And remember, in most individuals, sure, you want to get that A1C below 6.5, but there are, there are going to be people with comorbidities where you may want to settle for a higher A1C. And we'll go over that in endocrinology. But you want to hit your goals. If you don't, well, then what happens? You get endothelial dysfunction. And endothelial dysfunction leads to what? Decreased nitric oxide. And remember, what does nitric oxide do? It's a vasodilator. And if you can't vasodilate, you're going to what? Constrict. That's going to impair what? Blood flow. What about this one? Endothelial dysfunction increases what? Cox activity. That's why we give patients with heart disease and stroke what? Aspirin to decrease that. Next thing you know, you're going to get lots of inflammation. And that's why... What is a, a marker of inflammation that we see in heart disease? That's right, C-reactive protein. That's why we check it. And of course, endothelian. And endothelian is a very potent vasoconstrictor. And you don't want this. And all these things lead to what? Atherosclerosis, which leads to what? Cardiovascular disease. So this is why we're so aggressive. I put this here, you know, a little bit outdated, but it's scary. But back in 2003, what am I showing is that in people who are going to be in the dark shaded areas, they're going to have, you know, people with more than two risk factors of what? Either blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, at least you're smoking. That's almost the entire United States right there. It is scary. And just to pound the point is that majority of people who have a myocardial infarction, they're caused by lesions with less than 50% stenosis. So remember, just because you shot the angiogram and it says, hey, it's less than 50% stenosis, doesn't mean not to be aggressive with your lipids, diabetes, and high blood pressure. So let me end on this. One of the key takeaways is that atherosclerosis can begin early. It progresses rapidly. Once again, atherosclerosis is a diffuse disease. It affects all of the vascular beds, and it can cause coronary artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, and stroke. And cardiovascular disease has many risk factors. We spoke about them already. Put them into two broad categories. It's going to be your modifiable and non-modifiable. And for the modifiable ones, know your guidelines, treat early, treat effectively, watch for side effects. And what we talked about is going to be the foundation of all the other sections we're going to be talking about. So why don't you catch up on your notes and I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.